You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. This morning we'll look at Luke chapter 11 again. We were there last week. And we're picking up where we left off at verse 14. So Luke eleven fourteen. that's where we're going to begin. I want our little theologians to draw for me this morning a picture of a divided kingdom. What would the life of a divided kingdom look like? So see if you can't uh, draw that. Jesus is going to um, argue that a divided kingdom uh, can't stand and won't be victorious. So how about a picture of a divided kingdom? We're looking at this, we're making our way through Luke's Gospels, you know, and uh, we're at uh, this point in Jesus' life that begins in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus is setting his face to Jerusalem. They're traveling, uh, they're making, making their way to Jerusalem, and here we have actually a long scene. Uh, it's, it would seem as though uh, the text for this morning and the text for next week all take place um, in, in uh, Jesus being stationary uh, with a body of people gathered around him. So it doesn't seem to be any travel or movement that's taking place in this passage or the passage for next week. It's one long uh, discourse. You'll see what I mean um, later on as I begin preaching from this text. The text again is Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 14. Let me, uh, let me pray for us and then I will read it. Father, thank you for your word. We ought to come to your word with a humble regard, a submissive regard. We ought to thank you. How often do we thank you for speaking to us? Now, Father, would you Uh, Train my heart and my lips that I would proclaim your word and your word alone. And the things that are um, an obstacle to seeing your word, Father, would you push back their effect. That it would be your word that glimmers, that shines as we look at this passage. Thank you, Father, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. 
And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the word of our Lord. And one of the things that separates Christianity from other world religions is that Christianity is a revealed religion. What's meant by this expression is that we worship a God who is not elusive or afraid to be made public, but actually a God who makes himself known. When we say this, we are saying that God is not like a leprechaun or the Loch Ness monster, things we know are real, but we've never seen them. I mean, if you think Loch Ness Monster and a leprechaun is real. But neither is Christianity like a religion in which the followers have to, on their own, pursue some secret access to secret knowledge. And so, just as an example, Buddhism is not a revealed religion in the sense that uh, Buddha is not a god, but he's a sage who found enlightenment, and so can you, so is taught. And Scientology is not a revealed religion in that L. Ron Hubbard did not claim to be a god, but rather one who discovered these life principles that you too can discover. Many spiritual people of our own day make similar claims that they have on their own achieved some secret access to special knowledge that helps them to make sense of the world around them. There's not an authoritative source of this knowledge, only a deep feeling about the truthfulness of their own knowledge. Uh, In this regard, many spiritual people today talk about religions that's not unlike tribal animism or pantheism, uh, beliefs that are personal and make sense of their own world, but they're not founded on any revelation. They're not revealed to them by an authoritative body of truth like one God or a body of literature that might unite them all. It's a hunch. It's not a revealed religion. It's a secret religion. And in Christianity, we don't have this luxury if you want to call it a luxury at all. Christians listen to God through Holy Scripture as God's will is revealed throughout the ages of biblical history. During this time, people wondered what it meant to hear and keep the Word of God, and throughout the story of redemption in biblical history, uh, they understand that hearing and keeping the Word of God is not hearing and keeping, uh, or not hearing alone His Word, but actually keeping that very will of God. It's hearing God's will and keeping God's will. And in a non-revealed religion, we would simply look inside ourselves And as we look inside ourselves, we find deep answers. And in non-revealed religion, nobody would be able to challenge us because the source of our knowledge is not outside of a person, but it's inside that person. So it's deep enough that it cannot be challenged from an outsider. But God makes himself known in concrete ways, and as it turns out, he defines what it means not only to hear him speak, but to follow 
what he says. And our passage this morning is a challenge that is, we were reading about a challenge that's made to Jesus by religious authorities. And what we learn from Jesus' response is that hearing and keeping the word of God is this. It's to follow Jesus Christ. To hear and to keep the word of God, the will of God, is actually to follow Jesus. We want to start by looking at the setting. You know, in our last passage, the passage that we looked at last week, the setting didn't seem to matter as much. Luke 11 verse 1 simply says that Jesus stopped to pray in a certain place. And then he teaches about prayer. Jesus and his disciples are in the process of traveling to Jerusalem, as I already stated. He has his face set on Jerusalem. But the setting here is actually very important. Luke wants us to know that this entire passage has something to do with a miracle. An event has happened, and the ramifications of that event cloud everything that follows. Not only do we read in verse 14 that Jesus was casting out a demon. Was casting out a demon. But Luke is also clear that when the demon had gone out, something happened. The mute man spoke. When the demon had gone out is very important for our passage because the setting of our passage is the setting of a completed miracle. The miracle has already happened. Jesus has healed the man and it is absolutely beyond doubt because a once mute man is now in the present able to speak. For you and I, when we speak, it's a natural event, but the very existence of this man's words, the formation of audible syllables and sentences and paragraphs, the intonation, the tone, the volume about this voice, everything about this voice, regardless of what this voice is saying, testifies to the power of Jesus to cast out demons. The setting of this passage is a setting of miraculous success. The man who was mute is speaking. The result is that two rather sophisticated challenges are arrayed at Jesus. This is what we find beginning in verse 15. You see, Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem, and that may be why in Mark's gospel, when we read of this scene, we're told that the challengers are not just any challengers, they're the religious sophisticates of the day. They're the scribes and the Pharisees, religious leaders and authorities who have come down from Jerusalem specifically to challenge Jesus. And the first challenge is in verse 15. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, they say. This is the challenge that we're going to talk about this morning because Jesus makes a a two-part defense of this challenge. But the second challenge is in verse 16. They want to test him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. This is the second challenge. Now, if you skip forward in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 11, skip forward to verse 29. You'll see there that the scene remains unchanged. There's still a man who has been healed from a demon and is able to speak. The difference in verse 29 is that the crowd begins to increase in size and Jesus begins to take on the second challenge that they seek a sign. 
And I want to look at Jesus' defense to the second challenge of verse 16. I want to look at that next week. This week, we're focusing on verse 15, the first challenge. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. I want us to consider in this scene, first of all, before I say anything else, that Jesus is in complete control of what's happening. Not only was he able to give speech to the mute man, he can hear the words of the mute man speaking in the background, providing a testimony of his work, and so can everyone else. The mute man can speak now, and he's testifying to something great. Jesus can hear that, but not only this, Jesus can also hear the words of his challengers positioning their argument against him. He can hear their words as well. But then there's something else, and I don't want us to skip it. Jesus can hear the words of the mute man. Jesus can hear the words of those challenging him. But Jesus can also hear their thoughts. That's what we're told. Jesus, in his penetrating knowledge, can actually hear their thoughts. He's in complete control of what's going on. There is a sense in which, to Jesus' ears, he's hearing a cacophony. A man who couldn't talk can speak words of the challengers, and he's even hearing the words before they come out of their lips. He's in complete control of this situation. Now, this first challenge of verse 15, that Jesus casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, it sounds audacious, but really it isn't. This is a remember the Alamo kind of chant that might catch a number of people off guard, but if they thought about it, it would actually make some sense, this challenge would. Beelzebul or Beelzebub was an obscure name from the 9th century B.C. Ekron was a city of the Philistines, and apparently they worshipped a god that went by the name of Baal-zebub, which can be translated as the Baal of the Flies, or the Lord of the Flies, according to William Golding, certainly. But Baalzebub could also mean the Baal of the dwelling, or the master of the house, or the lord of the house. And so when a body of scribes and Pharisees bring up Baalzebub, they likely have a political agenda to arouse an uneducated crowd, giving them a word that they vaguely heard of before. They can get the crowd to chant, Jesus works for Beelzebub, without anyone really wondering what any of this means. All they really know is that this Beelzebub is really bad. In the ninth century, there was a king of Israel named Ahaziah. We read his story this morning. He was the son of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And after only two years, he, his reign ended. But sometime during his reign, he actually um, hurt himself, an accident of some sort in which he fell maybe one or two stories, and he became uh, permanently ill as a result. And so he's a bedridden king, which is an interesting picture. He sought help from a god in Ekron that he knew was a god over, get this, households. He knew that the people of Ekron had this God that was a God over households, the kind of God who specializes, right? A specialist God. And he specializes in domestic needs. Baal Zebub, God of households. And the true God, however, arouses Elijah to intercept this request, saying to King Ahaziah, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to acquire of Baal Zebub, the God of Ekron? You see, all 
Ahaziah already had the one true God as God over the entire household of Israel and even over his own house, but he looked to Beelzebub, dividing not only the house of Israel, but also his own house, because this is a king who died without a son to carry forward his legacy. But it was Elijah, and the Pharisees and scribes know this, it was Elijah who highlighted the divided household of King Ahaziah. And since many people already thought of Jesus as Elijah, the charge seemed somehow appropriate. He's doing what Ahaziah did. Or he is the one whom Ahaziah erroneously, sinfully sought. And so at the accusation of working for Beelzebub, Jesus obviously knows what's behind the charge. Jesus begins his defense. Notice how he refers to a household in verse 17. The word household is actually there. Jesus clearly knows Hebrew. He knows the background for that name, uh, Baalzebub. He gets the illusion. He won't be the one fooled at the dinner party by the only educated guy in the room. Jesus knows what's going on. And furthermore, Jesus does, Jesus uh, knows that the Pharisees are making a connection and Jesus makes a connection. Jesus actually connects household and kingdom. He ups the ante, as it were, to make this not a matter of just a household or a nation with national deities. He wants it to be about an entire kingdom, and not just a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. He knows that the Pharisees are attempting to unite him with Satan. And so speaking to the entire audience, Jesus says that there are two things that everyone can affirm, not simply about a household or a nation, but about kingdoms. Jesus says, first of all, that kingdoms are always united. A successful kingdom always has a measure of unity. Not that a successful kingdom isn't without differences and power struggles and so on. The Roman Empire certainly had its share of division, even between Pontius Pilate and officials at Rome. But by and large, a successful kingdom must at its root be united. The kingdom of the Jews was divided after the death of King Solomon, and consequently the kingdom of the Jews didn't last. The kingdom of Satan, however, has apparently lasted, hasn't it? It apparently remains undivided, lasting even to this very day. Standing in this audience is a man who only a few moments ago was made mute by the power of one of Satan's wicked angels. We could all ask him, is the power of Satan united? And surely he'd happily say yes. Yes, he's tasted the evidence of a united kingdom being possessed by one of Satan's wicked angels. A successful kingdom always has a measure of unity. But Jesus also has the second point about kingdoms, that the strongest kingdom actually wins in the end. Look what he says in verse 21, that the stronger kingdom is the one that prevails. It's natural that the king would put strong gates and strong men around the walls of his kingdom. It's also natural that the king would surely put strong men and strong gates around his domestic household. Do you know what I mean when I say that the king's children are always the safest children in the kingdom? The king always takes care of his household. And what Jesus says is he says if someone can break into his kingdom 
can also break right into his personal home, well, that kingdom surely is lost. Even if his kingdom is totally united, he's still lost, and another king rules in his place. So this is Jesus' first response to the charge that he's working for Beelzebub. What are we to make of this? What has happened when Jesus has cast the demon out of the mute man? He's asserted the authority of the most powerful kingdom that the world has ever known. He's saying, according to verse 20, that the one action of delivering this mute man from a demon was the flexing of God's own finger. It's a funny expression, that reference to the finger of God. God wrote the Ten Commandments with His own finger. The Bible is clear about that. But I suspect the reference that Jesus is making is not to the finger of God writing the Ten Commandments. Jesus is alluding to the raw power of God over every kingdom of the world, the finger of God involved, according to Psalm 8, in the creation of the entire cosmos. The magicians and Pharaoh, you remember this scene, don't you? Jesus is uh, reminding them of this wonderful scene where Moses is able to do things by the power of God that the magicians of Pharaoh cannot do. And the magicians of Pharaoh, when they can't defeat Moses, go to their boss, the Pharaoh, and they say, this is the finger of God. I think that's what Jesus is referring to. Do you have doubts? Well, Pharaoh's magicians say this is the finger of God. And Jesus is invoking the power of God to overturn the kingdoms of the world, to enter every household and assert power and authority over that household, to enter into that very central feature of the king's kingdom, his own household. And Jesus has the power of the finger of God to enter that private place and kick over the furniture. Now, the kingdom of God is totally and completely united. The power of God being fully exercised by His own Son, such that Satan can no more stand against Jesus than he can stand against God Himself. And not only this, but Jesus personalizes things. He says that the kingdom of God is not going to win. He's saying the kingdom of God has already won. The flexing of God's finger proves that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And if you would like to be associated with this kingdom, Jesus tells them how. Jesus insists insists that you must be united to Him. Verse 23 says, whoever is not with me is against me. Now this is the first part of Jesus' response to the charge that he is working with the power of Beelzebub. His second is trickier. It does seem that the argument from the perspective of kingdom unity and kingdom success would sufficiently defeat the argument and that Jesus is not an ally with Beelzebub. I would love for the passage to stop at verse 23. Jesus, you've made your point. The defense can stop. But he doesn't, does he? He goes into verse 24. And I'm sure you'll agree that this is perhaps one of the most confusing parts of Jesus' teaching ministry. If you hadn't been attentive up to this point, pay attention to verse 24. Jesus paints the picture of a two-stage attempt to force a demon out of a person. 
Of course, Jesus has just done this to a once-mute man, so the illustration is pressing on everyone's mind. Jesus says in verse 24 that a demon, having left, passes through waterless places seeking rest. Passes through waterless places seeking rest. This is very strange. But certainly it has something to do with creation. Rest may refer to the completed work of creation on day seven when Eden was a happy place of rest. And perhaps the wicked angel is looking for this kind of rest and instead finds the opposite, a waterless place that's more similar to a barren wilderness or the unordered chaos just prior to creation. Regardless, it is a futile endeavor. And there is no other satisfying option for this wicked angel but to return to the same place. However, as it turns out, it finds the place difficult to retake and therefore finds reinforcements, seven others. And having done so, the eight wicked spirits live happily ever after in this newly remodeled home. Well, this is clear enough, isn't it? Perhaps I shouldn't say anything else. Crystal clear. But let me do this. Let me be bold, and let me suggest to you something. Remember the man who used to be mute and has been, since the, since the miracle, gleefully talking away, testifying to the miraculous work of Jesus? Do you remember him? When he hears the words that begin at verse 24, what do you think his response is? Just think about that. He's just had a demon delivered from him. In fact, verse 14 says that Jesus cast out one demon. One demon, very similar to this illustration that begins in verse 24. Do you suppose he's still talking now? Or do you suppose that he's sitting on the ground, arms wrapped around his knees, eyes darting to the left and to the right, anxiously awaiting? What's he awaiting? Well, he's awaiting not one demon, but he's awaiting eight demons to come and finish the work that they began. I'm speculating here. Scripture doesn't tell us that. We're not told any more about the healed man, but Jesus does seem to be making a point here that it is rather dangerous business to not capitalize on a miraculous event. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If Jesus has cast out a demon, the proper response is not simply a matter of turning over a new leaf, of sweeping one's house, of putting one's house in order. Verse 25 seems to refer to human effort. Sweeping, it's a human task, isn't it? And this is not just any human effort, but a heroically arrogant human effort to put, as verse 25 says literally, to put the cosmos back into order. Verse 25 then seems to be a picture of someone who has benefited from a miraculous miracle, but has not responded in faith to the one who affected the miracle. Did you hear that? It could be that beginning at verse 24, we have a picture of a man who has benefited from a miraculous miracle, but has not responded in faith to the one who affected that miracle. In simplest terms, it is one who has heard the word of God in verse 28, but has not kept it. It is a person who is not a Christian, who has vividly heard the message of the gospel in the sense that the speaker of that very gospel was Jesus himself. 
And Jesus has proved the breaking in of the gospel by casting out your biggest enemy. We might say that Israel is a lot like a person like this. God has spoken more vividly to the people of Israel than to any other nation or any other human on earth. God has so zealously loved the nation of Israel. No one has heard the words of God, seen the testimonies of His work more vividly than the people of Israel. God made His own dwelling with His people. God spoke with them. God sustained them. God decimated powerful kingdoms all around them. And God even forgave them. God drew Abraham from a pagan nation. God spoke to him. God blessed him with offspring. God multiplied his offspring in Egypt, and he delivered them out of Egypt. And God united them around his very own presence in the tabernacle and then in the temple. God built them into a great people, even giving them an earthly king. And he continues to shepherd and care for these people's daily needs through prophet after prophet after prophet. These people heard but they didn't keep. And perhaps that's the picture that begins in verse 24 of someone who has heard or benefited, but hasn't kept, hasn't responded in worship. They accepted the benefits, but they did not respond in faith and worship. They cashed in the gifts, but they were not devoted to the gift giver. Now, Verses 24 through 26, they're just notoriously difficult, but I've already shown my cards in the sense that I believe these verses are summarized in Jesus' words in verse 28, and that these verses refer to a two-step process of hearing as well as keeping God's Word. This is similar at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a charge to the Pharisees and the scribes in particular, for they are the masters of hearing God's word. And while most of the audience thinks that they are not only the masters of hearing God's word, but also the masters of keeping God's word, Jesus says otherwise. He says that they have heard but not kept. They've heard but not believed. I want us to conclude by asking what is meant by this. Are you here this morning as a hearer of God's word and not a keeper of God's word? And if so, how might I know that about myself? That's how I want to conclude. Uh, Let me ask you this. Are you a hearer of God's word or are you a hearer and keeper of God's word? Do you rest in the perfect work of Jesus for your own salvation? Or do you rest or rely upon your own work, whatever it might be? When Jesus died on the cross, did he die for your guilty, rebellious heart? Or did he only die for one or two or three of your most pernicious, bad sins? Are you a hearer or a hearer and a keeper? Here's another way to ask this very same question. Have you tidied your house in such a way that Jesus cannot live there? Have you tidied your house in such a way that Jesus has no place there? Things are ordered and in place. His authority is not welcome there. 
Do you admit that God knows you better than you know yourself? Do you acknowledge His will for your future is far more precious than your own will for your future? Are you more excited about His plan than your own plan? (laughs) Have you tidied your house in such a way that Jesus just can't live there? There's no room for Him. By the way, if you have, if you're comfortable saying that you have, I would say that you're the strong man of your own kingdom. That connects the two illustrations that Jesus presents. If you have tidied your house in such a way that Jesus is not welcome there, or Jesus says some things that are essentially substantially disagreeable to you, well, to be sure, you've tidied your house. You have expended a great deal of effort to line up the cosmos of your dwelling. Very good sweeping, but would you please at least admit that you are actually the strong man of your own kingdom? And there's one stronger. The honest believer ought to actually, with regards to the question, have you tidied your own house in such a way that Jesus can't live there? I would expect the sincere believer to say, yes, I have, but I rely on God to help me in my unbelief. In Mark chapter 9, verse 24, don't look there now, but keep this in mind. Mark 9, 24, a glorious statement of a father of a sick child. When Jesus asks if he believes, he says, I believe, but help me in my belief. I believe, but I need your help that I might continue in belief. That's a Christian response. Yes, God, I rest in Jesus, but have mercy on my tepid devotion to him. And Jesus actually replies to this. How? How does he do this? How does God, or how does Jesus rather, equip my tepid devotion that it would grow less tepid and I would grow more devoted? By dwelling in you by his Holy Spirit. By nourishing you day by day through the Bible, through prayer, through fellowship with his people, through worship with his people in his name. And also by coming to this table. I don't want you to hear from this question, have I made my house unlivable for Jesus? I don't want you as a Christian to doubt that you believe anything at all about Him. I want you to recognize that you need Him in conversion and you need Him to sustain your daily nourishment. That you would grow in your devotion to Him. That you would be not only a hearer of God's Word, but a keeper of that Word. And as a Christian, I offer to you this morning an opportunity to come to this table and to delight in the nourishment that He has for you. His broken body and His spilled blood that you as a Christian might actually be nourished that the tepid devotion would be warmed up. Are you a hearer of God's Word without being a keeper of that Word? Well... Let's pray together, then we'll confess faith and we'll come to this table, Jesus entering into our house, making his abode there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you care for us in Christ Jesus, that he is the culmination and the center of your will for us, that we would fall before him and that we would worship him and that we would feast upon him daily in prayer, through your word, through the life of the church and that we would come and feast upon him as we worship. Father, thank you for feeding us day by day in Christ Jesus, that we might be hearers and keepers of your will.
In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.